Did you know Shopify doesn't allow more than 100 combinations of options on a product? Fortunately, there's a solution. Bold Product Options app, the number one options app on Shopify with more positive reviews than any other. And it allows you to create as many options on products as you want in every type you can imagine. File uploads, text fields, text areas, radio buttons, checkboxes, color swatches, date pickers, and a couple others I forgot. And it's a huge time saver because when you create your options, you can apply them to one product or an entire store or an entire collection or a particular product type or any group of products you want with a single click. And you could save that option set to apply to any new products you add that need it. Now imagine trying to add gift wrapping option to every product in your store. Normally it'd be a nightmare. With the Bold Options app, it's one click. It can even adjust prices, or those options can actually be products too. So for example, an option could be add the matching hat or add a protective case. And then when your customers select it, it actually adds the product in the checkout. It's a total power move to sell bundles, and it doesn't even feel like it to the customer. Now there's nothing worse than looking at a whole bunch of fields when you're buying a product. It scares customers away. They may not even need to be filled out. So product options adds conditional logic. It's this tool that lets you show or hide options based off what customers pick. For example, if you select custom engraving, then we only want to show the custom engraving text field after they've checked that, and so on. Now, if you need sophisticated options, or just more than the standard 100 variant limit, this is the app you need. You can get started today with a 60-day free trial by going to ethercycle.com bold. That's ethercycle.com bold. What's the number one customer support request you get? I bet it's, hey, Where's my order? My friends at Ventov, makers of SEO Meta Manager, have a solution for this. It's called Order Lookup, and it lets customers look up their orders, right, good name, with either their email or order number, reducing the order inquiries you get in your inbox. We use it on our own high-volume Shopify Plus client stores, like Hoonigan and Yvonne Stells to provide real-time order info to customers with a fully customizable order lookup page, so you can keep that thing on brand. And hey, if you're a dropshipper, it even works with ePacket. You can get a seven-day free trial when you search Order Lookup in the App Store. Uh, So I have... I have misophonia. <laughs> it's a disorder. <laughs> and the mouth noises, especially those related to eating or drinking, make me insane. I f- was really, I felt very, vind- I grew up with this. I was vindicated when I read an article, started seeing articles that they were researching it, that it was real. And then that uh, they did functional MRI studies and found that those people's people with misophonia their brain responds differently it like can literally put them into a state of rage just hearing whatever the trigger noises are and it's almost always eating yeah i know that because i work with you in the same room for many years and i would sit at my desk and eat a sandwich like a normal human being and you would be like oh my god jesus christ and i'm like can i eat food i'm I'm sorry i don't know what i'm doing why do i sound like an italian grandmother that's all my characters yeah. Well, yeah. Is, is this like from your, your childhood? Uh, no, actually. Mostly you are, movies. You're like hilariously Italian. You're like a Chicago Italian stereotype. I'm not, though. I guess you're, well, your dad is. He's not an Italian stereotype either. I just, I have a photo of him in a sleeveless t shirt sitting in a very 80s kitchen 
with you as a baby in his lap eating a giant loaf of bread. I'm eating the bread, by the way, not him. Yes, you are eating the bread. <laughs> and he's proud as could be. He's got this like Mario mustache. The whole thing's great. I know. Yeah. You, you love that photo. I do. <laughs> um, it made my day. <laughs> I don't know why that's not framed in our office. It's so fabulous. I think I, I'm going to go dig it up and print I'm it. I'm shaking my head <laughs> on radio. Yeah, it doesn't work. I nod a lot. I nod along. And then I'm like, oh, nobody knows. Uh, so we just wrapped up hosting our second or third, depending on how you count it. It was the second. Fine. The second one didn't, the previous second one didn't happen. No one was there. It was canceled. Uh, all right, fine. So we did our previous second or third what? Meetup. There you go. Our Chicago Shopify Plus meetup. Uh, we The first one, we did it in Lord & Taylor, which was really cool, this abandoned Lord & Taylor. But the space was huge and a little weird. So this time we did it in a uh, abandoned deli. It was our favorite deli. It was a great place. It's a diner. Diner, sorry, a diner. It wasn't just like a meat counter. Everyone was <laughs> gathered around. <laughs> uh, yeah, I need a half pound of salami. No, none of that. It was... A nice, decent diner, which really made for like a the perfect size space for the number of people we had um, in a nice, intimate setting. But we have about 70 people. I didn't think it was that many, but sure. <laughs> All right, what's your number? I don't know. I thought maybe like 40. 40? No, 40 was like 30s was what we had at the first one we did. This was This was more than that. that, so maybe 50. I don't know. All I know is a million people came to the inauguration. That's all I That's know. That's true. Yeah. Yes. I'm not going to question. Why would I question that? Yeah, it sounds incredibly obvious, but the space really affects how you view the event and like whether or not you enjoy it. Because, I mean, that Lord & Taylor, it was an abandoned department store. It was two floors. It's a mall anchor. So no matter how many people we packed in there, unless it was, you know, 500 or probably more than that. I could have put 1,000 people in that yeah, thing. Yeah, it would have been, it, no matter what, it would have been like the stand. So... <laughs> yeah, we're all huddled waiting for zombies to come. Yeah, it wasn't... Uh, it was cool, but it, it just it didn't... It did not lend itself well to, like, networking and breaking out. Yeah, it didn't feel very fun. It felt, like, sterile. Whereas, Whereas this, we packed the diner. Yeah. And it was a diner. It's fun. Old school diner. And the booths, what was cool, I loved... The booths turned into breakout sessions for people. Yeah, people were sitting in the booths, like, meeting each other. Like, it was great. Yeah, the, I really thought that was cool. The location made it ten times better. So I think in the future, we'll try and look for restaurant locations or things of similar size with, like, space for breakouts. Or I'll just take whatever I can get in the mall. Yeah, whatever's free. Yeah. The, well, West, so uh, we presented this idea to Westfield, uh, the, the landlord who owns the mall, the big, big Westfield, um, who owns, like, half the malls in the United States. And they said, listen, we, we would love to host uh, your events. They're familiar with Shopify. Um, they had seen a gotten a, uh, the staff here had gotten a presentation from Shopify about um, I believe it was the importance of pop up stores and the value of that, and so they said yeah please absolutely bring bring Shopify merchants we want to bring um, what they call dynamic retailers to the mall, and we want to bring uh, more tech people instead of dentists and doctors into the professional building. So we've got this this symbiotic relationship thing going. Anyway, the I got good feedback on the event. We filmed. The whole thing. We also recorded it. And at the event, uh, Nick DeSabato, who's been on the show before to talk about conversion rate optimization, spoke on none other than conversion rate optimization. And he gave this very practical, somewhat amusing 20-something minute talk on, hey, 
here's the crash course on getting started with conversion rate optimization for real, not just like I'm split testing button colors. And like he lays out his methodology and approach, which is very interesting, and then did a, a Q&A. I thought it was so valuable, and we've got the audio, that that's today's episode. So you get Paul and I banter, and now, in case you missed the event, you say, oh man, I wish I was there, you will get some value out of it here. We also had Beef Brody and Alex Kristoff from Tactical Baby Gear uh, did a Q&A panel, and that, in a couple weeks, we're going to release that as video. Um, but for right now, please enjoy the marketing stylings of Mr. Nick DeSabado. Uh, I am Nick DeSabado. I'm a designer and writer from Chicago. Uh, thank you, Kurt, for having me here today. Thank you all for coming. This is an amazing, like, pretty packed house. Um, and yes, the rumors are true. I've known Kurt since I was 12. Um, and we're both in e-commerce. And I needed to put up this humiliating photo. But you know, anyway. Uh, so we're here. Um, I kind of do conversion rate optimization. I do just optimization in general. Conversion rate is one bit of it. AOV also matters. Average revenue per user also matters. Um, but it's not really the whole story. It's not about A-B testing, right? When you think about conversion rate optimization, you think about split testing or A-B testing, and that's the like, cool, sexy bit of it, right? That's what everybody always wants to ask me about. Um, optimization is about creating a reliably profitable process for de-risking new design decisions and to get a net ROI out of it, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you about it. Wouldn't have a lot of wins from it, right? So the goal is to make more money off of optimization than you put into it. And when that happens, your maturity around optimization increases. You get some wins. You start understanding what the process means, understanding what it means for you and your store. It's kind of bespoke to the store. Um, and as you gain more maturity with optimization, you are more comfortable putting more resources into it. It becomes lower risk to keep doing it. And it becomes a virtuous cycle, right? Makes your business even better at optimization. So in this talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about a process that I go through to optimize a lot of different online stores. Um, some are in the seven-figure range. Some are kind of in growth mode. Um, hopefully, you'll be able to get a consistently high ROI out of it no matter what size your store happens to be. So with that in mind, what do you do first? Everybody's like, oh, how do I get started with optimization? Well, you have to do all of the things that you have been putting off on preparing your store for testing, which is doing things like browser testing. Take a look at what browsers are converting below the norm. Take a look at what is faring well. Take a look at what is faring relatively poorly. Try and figure out why things are do doing poorly on a given browser. Take a look at your mobile. Usually, you get a graph like this, where your desktop is doing super well, your tablets are doing super worse, and your smartphones are doing horribly, right? Figure out what specific devices are performing better than others. Figure out what pages are converting below the norm and what browsers are converting below the norm. Um, none of this involves running a single A-B test. It involves understanding what browsers are doing poorly, what devices are doing poorly, what pages are doing poorly, and where you have opportunities to try and fix stuff. So you're going to be doing a lot of bug fixing. You're going to be doing a lot of cleanup. And why does this matter? Here's an example. So preparing your store for testing matters. Uh, a little while ago, I worked. I began working with a skincare makeup brand called Boom by Cindy Joseph. I went in and took a look at their Google Analytics and looked at their site speed graph and found out that their average uh, page load time was 16.8 seconds. That's bad. I saw a couple wincing. Yeah, it's very bad, right? Everyone knows it's bad. If you don't know it's bad, here's a bunch of evidence proving that it's bad. Um, page load times map to worse conversion. If you want the, your conversion rate to go up, 
pretty quickly, you can decrease your page load time that decreases your bounce rate and increases your conversion rate. And that's because people don't get bored with your store or quit off or whatever have you. And I cut it by a third by doing a couple easy things. I compressed a bunch of images. I used the library image optim. If you guys don't use that already, you should. Um, if you don't have the app uh, CrushPix installed, crush.pics, you should get that installed. That does this basically automatically if you're lazy. Charges you money, not very much, but it's great. Um, I removed a bunch of like redundant JavaScript calls. They were calling jQuery four times. Calling jQuery four times is bad, right? Things that are very obvious and common sense. A couple of like F heavyweight image-based elements that were further down the page that weren't really, you know, being looked at by customers or anything like that. And I ended up getting the page weight down to, I think the average at that point was like 9.1 seconds, which still sucks, right? Like, but it's better than 16.8. It's not like stage and intervention level horrible. Um, and I would have to cut meat beyond that to try and figure it out. And the consequence is that overnight, the conversion rate went up by 9.1%, and I look like a wizard by doing a bunch of common sense stuff, right? Hooray, yes, thank you. So to recap, I took a look at the store's analytics for five minutes. I made a bunch of changes that they should have done that they didn't bother looking at and made the store a lot of money into perpetuity. That is obviously great for a store that's been around for a really long time and makes a lot of money already to begin with. Um, and I know it's very simplistic. Like That's kind of a matter of luck. We found some low-hanging fruit. It worked out really well. But that doesn't change the spirit of the problem, does it? It doesn't change the fact that the problem is important for any business, which is paying attention to this sort of evidence is what's necessary for continued growth. If I hadn't found it, somebody would have, hopefully, somebody on the team or some other consultant, and your store is leaking some amount of revenue somewhere. Taking a look at these different things matters, right? And you can always grow despite this. You can launch a popular product. You can juice your ad spend. You can you know, get an influencer play, get lucky. you know. But those are all risky. Fixing stuff is not risky. It is stuff that you already have on your store, and you can potentially make a lot of money from it. And so it's dangerous to rely on tactics that aren't doing the like common sense thing and bug fixing your store. And that's the first thing that you have to do before you even start running any A-B tests. It's wildly unsexy, but it is profitable and it works. And you probably haven't done it lately. With that in mind, once you have all of that together, uh, it's start, time to start optimizing what you actually have. So I'm not going to teach you how to run an A-B test because, frankly, there are a million guides out there for doing that. And there are a million A-B testing frameworks that teach you how to do that. And if you want, you can you know, read a bunch of different resources. right? What matters? more than running an A-B test is coming up with test ideas that are reliably winning, right? It doesn't matter if you're running A-B tests and getting really good, clear, statistically significant results out of it if you end up with test ideas that don't actually perform well and you're just stabbing in the dark or you have a low success rate or whatever have you. You want to be able to move the needle for your store, right? And the best way that I've found to do that is by researching what customers do, how they behave, what motivates them, and, and responding to that and coming up with test ideas that are more likely to win as a result. I personally believe that no, no store owner really knows their customers until they start observing and asking them. You might be doing this by taking a look at customer support inquiries. You might be you know, emailing customers occasionally or asking for surveys. And those are, those are good. They're research methods. It's great. But it's not are only small parts of a larger research process. I'm going to be talking about other research methods that you can potentially be turning into design decisions that are more likely to win. 
Research is how you come up with test ideas that work. So research has two forms, it's qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative research is more like, what is the narrative that drives your customers? Why did they come in today? What value are they getting out of your product? What are they saying about it? What are their hopes and dreams? How do you make them feel heard and understood? How do you craft a value proposition that actually resonates with them? That can involve talking to customers, finding interesting feedback, getting customer support inquiries, sitting in a customer's environment, watching them work, like whatever it is. Those are all forms of qualitative research. And then if you're a data nerd like me, there's quantitative research, and that involves measuring stuff. It can involve looking at analytics. It can involve looking at heat maps or scroll maps. Um, it can involve looking at surveys that involve like averaging survey scores or whatever have you. And all of those involve quantitative, they involve data. Um, but it's vitally important to have a 50-50 blend of both qualitative and of quantitative research methods in whatever testing program that you're doing. Because if you get only this, it's only going to help you craft your pitch. It's only going to have you help you like reduce objections. Like it'll help you end up closing sales more effectively. This makes your store work a little bit better. This makes your conversion funnel work a little bit better. It makes it easier to actually take their credit card information. You know, it makes it easier for them to go through and do this. So a few forms of quantitative research include heat maps. Um, if you have an online store, you should be running heat and scroll maps. The tool that I use to do this is called Hotjar, H-O-T-J-A-R.com. It's pretty cheap. I think it's like $49 a month, something like that. And it basically tells you where people are interacting with the page, where they're not interacting with the page, what devices and platforms they are doing those things on. Um, you get scroll maps for free as a result. This shows where people are scrolling, the percentage of customers that are actually scrolling down. And um, if you go, you know, you'll see this. It's basically everyone is at the top, and then you get fewer and fewer people that are scrolling down as they continue to go down the page. And you'll find out that eventually nobody is going to be down here. And so what does that mean for your store, right? Like you end up, okay, well, cutting these elements, or you end up loading a lot of dead weight. You don't realize that people aren't interacting with this stuff. You make the page shorter. You rework the structure of the page. You rework the pitch on the page. You make it more interesting to read. Analytics. You should probably have Google Analytics installed on your Shopify store. If you do not, you're at the Shopify Plus meetup. I have still encountered $50 million Shopify stores that didn't have e-commerce tracking installed on Google Analytics. So make sure that your Google Analytics install is configured correctly. Prepare your store for Google Analytics. Start configuring goals and events and getting everything working properly there. Let's talk a little bit about qualitative research. Uh, customer interviews. This involves um, literally getting people on the phone and talking to them for an hour about why they chose to come to your store, what kinds of products they purchased on it, and why they decided to go with you over competitors. Um, you compensate them for your time, talk a little bit of how they use stuff. This sounds terrifying to people who don't like getting on the phone. I have spent probably eight years getting over my aversion to that. It is possible. Usability tests. This sounds more like quantitative research, but you are actually having people complete example tasks on your store. You have them you know, purchase a product with a given credit card or place transaction or browse for something, whatever have you. Um, I use TryMyUI, the like 800-pound gorilla in this space is called usertesting.com, but it's more expensive and fancy. Um, this is a little bit more like punk, <laughs> and I like using it. And uh, go there, buy five usability tests, 
They will do all the recruitment for you. They will screen record and um, turn on the microphone for you. And they will, and customers and participants will like voice their inner monologue as they go through and try and complete tasks. You can see where people are getting tripped up, whether they're committing any errors, whether they have any specific objections. The, this costs money. It's like $350, I think, for five usability tests on TryMyUI. If that does not make you back the $350, if you have never run usability testing on your store, that is one of the absolute best thing you can do to sur uh, surface conversion killing usability issues and actually move the needle for your business. Um, it's an investment. You will probably make it back from the kind of insights that you're going to be getting from it. Uh, Post-purchase surveys. So on the thank you page or in the thank you email that you end up getting, it's like a, usually a one question survey or very brief survey that um, asks people their feelings about their purchase today or where their head was at or what hope they were hoping to get out of the product or whatever have you. And these sorts of things, you end up mining those responses. Sometimes people are like, where's my stuff at? Okay, great, send it along to the customer service department. Or I didn't like it. Okay, send it along to the customer service department. But you can still mine these for conversion insights and come up with interesting ideas for new tests. I'll be talking about that in just a minute. Um, so once you have research together, you're going to be doing a blend of these methods. And um, the like rate and cadence of that depends on what kind of tasks you're trying to be completing. I usually run heat maps about once a month. I usually run usability tests around once a quarter. I usually interview about once a quarter because it's a huge amount of time and effort. And I just feel wiped after doing it. Um, and I look at analytics basically every day to three or four times a week. Um, so. Once you have your research together, you need to find a way to translate it into revenue-generating design insights. Like, nobody ships research, you know? It's not like I take my research PDF and put it on my store, and then I make money off of it. You need to find a way to turn it into design decisions. And so in design parlance, that's called synthesis. And it sounds like fancy magic. It's not. It's a three-step process. The first step is identify the problem. So perhaps you have a heat map that is showing that nobody is clicking on an Add to Cart button. OK, well, that's a problem. Why, are no, why is nobody clicking on the Add to Cart button? Perhaps it's buried below the fold. And then so you go and look at scroll maps and try and figure that out. Either way, you have to understand that there is a problem. You want it to be solved in some capacity. And then the next step, find the reason. You don't know what the reason necessarily is. You're trying to guess on what the reason is, right? It's not. Oh, they're definitely clicking on this, or not clicking on this because it's below the fold. It's more, okay, well, we think it might be this case. So you might want to validate that by doing behavior recordings. You might want to do that by like taking a look at scroll maps or usability tests or whatever have you. Sometimes the answer here is performing more research and trying to keep digging into the actual motivations behind it. Sometimes it's obvious right off the bat, like the page takes 16 seconds to load, right? Like. Um, but either way, you need to try and find at least an informed guess as to what the reason might be. And that reason needs to be based in research. And then the next thing is improve the design. So um, whatever it happens to be, you should be making the design improvement rooted in what specifically addresses the problem and the reason behind it. So um, you know, if the Add to Cart button is you know, too far below the fold, come up with a design that moves it above the fold and make it so that it's more prominent, and then it might be easier to click. So you know, the reason that these work well in A-B tests is not necessarily because they make the button bigger or whatever have you. It's because they found out that there was potentially a problem, and then they tried to address it. And then the way in which you treat that 
um, it's not just making the button more prominent, it's the way in which you make it more prominent and why. And that is what is more likely to actually work for you. So only then can you start actually A-B testing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what that means. Um, putting together an A-B test, once you have design decision together, you've synthesized it into something that says, okay, we're going to make the button bigger and above the fold. Um, you need to create what's called a hypothesis. A hypothesis in A-B testing contains three components. Uh, the change, so we're making the button bigger and putting it above the fold. Whatever the actual metric is that you're trying to improve, so that could be average revenue per user, it could be average order value, um, that could be conversion rate, whatever it is. Um, you need to have an actual specific one metric that you're going to be improving because you need to be munging that through a bunch of statistics and figuring out whether or not to roll the decision out based on it. You can measure as many metrics as you want in a test. You can understand those for knock-on effects, but there has to be some sort of primary goal in mind to understand how much traffic you're going to be putting through. You'll understand why in a minute. Uh, and then the intended lift. So we made conversion rate go up by, say, 5%. And this matters, you need to be coming up with a specific intended lift so that you can calculate out your sample size. And I'll talk a little bit about why that's important and how it kind of becomes a give and take in a minute. But you can't run a test without a specific magnitude in mind before you run the test. So put all of those together, we are increasing the button size and putting it above the fold, and that will end up making conversion rate go up by 5%. That is what a hypothesis is. With that in mind, you need to calculate the required sample size for a test to run. Um, tests are kind of rooted in statistics. And so uh, basically, it's the sample size is contingent on what your goal is, what your existing conversion rate is for that goal, and um, what your intended lift is for the test. That sounds like a lot of complicated math. It is a lot of complicated math. Like in all complicated math problems, someone built a calculator for you to do this so you never have to think about the math behind it. And here's the link to it. Um, so these links, I use this calculator every day in my job. It is super, super useful. And it basically allows you to calculate out your sample size. It's in the background of this post here. Um, and it shows you exactly how much traffic that you need to be putting through per branch of your A-B test. So that includes your control. So you have to have something where you're not making a change and then you do all of this and it works out. Um, so you have a sample size, you have a hypothesis, you've built out a change, you've launched a test. Great. You wait like two weeks, three weeks, however long it takes to get to that sample size and now you need to make sense of the results. Um, as mentioned, testing is rooted in statistics. You're dealing with raw numbers. It's the people visiting your site. It's the people who are converting. It's the people who are converting on each different metric that you have. Um, and then you're trying to prove the success of whether or not you should be rolling out that design decision to all customers. That's ultimately what A-B testing is. It's answering a question in the most informed way possible about whether or not we should ship the thing. Um, what most A-B testers use for this, if they're like old school statistician types, they use something called a chi-squared test. It's another link on Evan Miller. I forgot how to do chi-squared tests in sophomore year of college, so I use this, and it basically helps me do it. It shows you, uh, you put together how many uh, people converted out of how many people visited your page for each branch of your variant, and then you determine how uh, statistically significant it is, and um, if it comes in at 95% or higher, then it's effectively likely to end up moving the needle for you, which is great. 
Um, there are a lot of A-B testing frameworks that come up with their own way of calculating out statistical significance to try and cut corners because um, they can guess, basically. Uh, they use what's called Bayesian statistics. Um, I do the like old school stuff because I tend to work with stores that are much larger, and so we have the luxury of actually operating with that. Um, so that's basically it. That's how you run an A-B test. You make a change, you have a hypothesis, you put together a test, you make sure that it's based in research, and then you calculate out the impact of it. That sounds great, right? Kind of don't need research for this, people tell me sometimes. Um, you know, you, you can run tests whenever you want. You can continue building tests as your current test is running. You always keep a test running. You keep what works, discard what doesn't. You hopefully profit. Um, so looking at how this works, research doesn't really appear to be essential. You could stab in the dark about it, right? This is the average success rate if you end up doing that, right? This is across every A-B testing framework, I believe, across all e-commerce stores. That's usually, I've seen like 14% sometimes bandied around. This is like, this is actually not the lowest average that I've seen for everybody, but that's one in eight um, that you're going to keep. I don't like that. I don't like that number at all because you're going to be wasting your time seven-eighths of the time, and that's not so great, right? But these people all stabbed in the dark. They changed their call to action button from green to blue and hoped for the best, and that was it. If you end up researching stuff, this is our lifetime success rate at draft. So we run 509 tests across, I think, 43 clients at this point. We have a 67% success rate, so that's just over two-thirds. And this is the average lifetime boost we've had for all of our clients. Um, and we know this because we look at everybody's Google Analytics and make sure that people are keeping the things that are working for them, right? And this just comes with like doing basic research that any UX designer would normally do in a project. And we're applying that research process to the coming up with AB, new A-B test ideas and, and hopefully profiting that way. Um, Research informs test ideas. And as you keep testing, the goalposts are going to change, which means you need to keep researching. You're not just running usability tests once. You're not just interviewing your customers once. You're doing it every so often. You're coming up with a routine for it. And you're sticking to it, and you're holding yourself to it. Um, both research and testing should be proceeding into perpetuity. So if you want your store to get more successful at retaining more customers, and maximizing your return on ad spent, you need to go out and start doing a lot of this. I know it's a lot of very high-level stuff. We've got a Q&A. I can talk about implementation after the talk and everything. Um, but I assure that you can do it. I do this process with people all the time. And um, I like it. I think it's a lot of fun. It's um, also the most like easy way to connect with customers and really understand what drives them. And that's wonderful. Um, the end goal is to make sure that you have more of a culture of optimization and more CRO maturity in your organization. And every store is unique. It's hard to know where all of you specifically are at. But hopefully with some of this like high-level advice, you'll be able to create a culture of optimization of your own. Hold up. We'll hear more after this quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Simpler, a new way to staff 24-7 sales and customer service on your Shopify store. It works with your existing email and chat tools, so setup is quick and easy. Simpler provides on-demand, US-based customer service specialists to answer your customers' most common questions. Close more sales with Simpler by staffing your email and live chat with 24-7 Simpler specialists. Find out more at simpler.ai. That's S-I-M-P-L-R dot A-I. And now, back to the show. Hit me. I'll repeat the questions back. Uh, just throw your hands up if you have any questions.
the question is, how do I bring people to the page? Is it with Google Ads or with other methods? Um, it depends on the store. Um, so usually it's, it's a combination of Google Ads, Instagram, Facebook, like whatever it is. Um, sometimes it's re-engaging customers over email campaigns. Um, I actually have one store that I work with who has been around for 25 years, and so a lot of their traffic is direct because their SEO is just so dominant that they've never had to worry about it, and so they retain both me and an SEO consultant. But what we do is not necessarily like what the traffic is or what the ad spend is. It's like once you come into the store, how do you work with it? How easy it is to use the store? Um, where do you go? How do you browse? How do you check out? Um, is that as like frictionless and feasible as humanly possible um, across devices? I spend a lot of my time on mobile because people don't get it right. So, um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Cool. Um, as oh, so the question was, what I, would I consider good conversion rates between uh, desktop, mobile, and uh, tablet? And that depends on the store. Um, like I've worked with some luxury brands that have low conversion rates because people come back frequently or they, you know, they're like more of a viral campaign or whatever have you. Um, but I would say that there should be maybe, it would be a huge win if the discrepancy between mobile and desktop were like 40 to 50%. So if like you had a like a for example, a 3% conversion rate on desktop and like a two 0.25 conversion rate on mobile. Um, because what I end up finding when I go into my like all the stores that I work with, it's one of the biggest insights that I found doing this job. I come in and your conversion rate on mobile is more like 1% or 1.25%. It's like default very, very bad. And people think that that is either because they like continue the purchase on desktop and so they convert artificially high on desktop and artificially low on mobile. Um, I just think it's because we haven't really figured out how to have a good mobile experience yet. And a lot of places aren't mobile first in their design and they should be. Most online stores should have mobile first design. They should not be vetting new design decisions on desktop. So um, I would say that like the discrepancy between mobile and desktop is what matters more than saying, oh, 3%. Like that's not quite as useful because I've seen as high as five for things that are like 10 bucks. They're like impulse purchases. Um, but I've seen stuff lower. Basically, the higher the AOV, usually, usually the lower the conversion rate. <laughs> Question is like, if I had to pick a page to start optimization on, I... I'm going to answer your question and then I'm going to unask your question and answer a different question. So um, if I had to pick one, if you put a gun to my head and made you answer your question, I would say product detail page because that has the most like ripe conversion opportunities. It's a place where there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people are like, that's the pitch. Like people are considering the pitch. The homepage is like the brand and the cart, like people know where to find the checkout button. Like there are, don't use a sidebar cart, just there it is. You have a cart. But uh, with that in mind, I'm going to unask this question and say, like, I've never zoomed in on one page in my life. Like, I think more holistically about how the store is operating. And it's not a whole lot more effort to run heat maps across three different pages than it is to run them on one and start focusing on things there. Um, obviously, I'm biased because I like doing this. And so I just kind of sink my teeth into a lot of different parts of the store. And it's not... Um, I don't think about it in terms of like, look at this page. 
I also don't think, I think it would be dangerous to take my answer earlier and say, oh, well, I'm going to look at the, the product page today and this week, and then next week we're going to move to the cart page and start making that good. Because then you get this like piecemeal kind of Franken design effect that doesn't end up, you kind of get like a local maximum out of your conversion rate, and that's not a good way to be thinking about the, the, whole, the whole process, the whole interaction of how customers are, are working with your store. Uh, so the question is, in addition to the like consulting, do I provide a service that like actually creates and runs the test? And so yes, um, I'll talk about draft a little bit. So we have a like one-off page site teardown where basically I'll just go through and come up with like a huge video report where I go through all your store and run heat maps and do GA and basically do what I already just said, right? And and that um. That, then I give you this report, and then I run off, and that's it. And you get a six-month test plan and a lot of actionable insights. And I think the average um, conversion rate bump I've gotten from stores is something like 15% from that. Like, it's good. Um, it does really well. Um, but then the thing that, like, I'm probably most known for is that I go in and do all of this for you. So I run the framework, do the statistical analysis, manage prioritization. I feel like I'm mostly a project manager in those in those situations because prioritizing A-B tests could be a whole other three-hour talk, figuring out um, what is most likely to move the needle, what is most technically feasible, that sort of stuff, right? Um, but then there's also, um, like, who is developing this? Who is connecting with it? I'm a designer by trade, so... Um, a large part of it is like I'll be working with another agency, like say EtherCycle, um, your best friends, um, and then they'll build out like more ambitious prototypes or stuff like that, and I'll be dictating like UX and stuff like that. So it's not even like I'm not just being somebody who like wings reports over to the CEO and tells them what to do. I'm like actually sitting down and doing design and coming up with prototypes and getting my hands dirty, at least on the design end of it. So. Um, the seam around that is fuzzy. Like sometimes I just like either there's a lot of like code debt or like developers are, you know, for some reason not fully resourced that week or whatever. So I hand other stuff off to them. But like, you know, most of the time I'm, I'm working on production. I'm actually creating stuff um, and, and putting my consultant hat on as I'm doing that the whole time. So, um, yeah. One last question. Make it good. Is there anything behind the poll? Uh, far back. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the question was, how do I make decisions as I'm looking at a scroll map? Um, Kurt actually asked me this exact same question when we were out for dinner like a month ago. There are two major things I'm looking for at the very beginning that I just zoom in on. And one of them is like big drop-off points. So you saw that like huge rainbow roll there. Like sometimes it just goes from like red to yellow like immediately and it just skips orange. That means you're already losing like 25% of your customers, right? So if there's like a major drop-off point, I want to know why. I don't want to know what exists at that drop-off point that what exists at that drop-off point that could potentially be losing customers, right? And if that's a good or a bad thing, it could be, oh, I'm convinced I'm buying the thing. Or, uh, and so I'm co connecting it to the heat map at the same time. Or it could be, I'm bored, I just closed the tab. Not so good, right? The second thing I'm looking at is the point at which maybe like fewer than 25% of customers are even looking at the page anymore. 
And um, this is the part that horrifies online store owners because it's sometimes like above the reviews. It's sometimes like above the nice fancy pants image gallery you put in. And that's like a third of your page load. So um, basically, if only a quarter of your customers are looking at the thing, either they got confused or they got bored or they already made their decision, right? And if you are loading anything below that point, it's probably dead weight on the page, which what did I say earlier about reducing page weight? Try and reduce page weight. So if you have a gigantic image gallery at the bottom of the page, then nobody's going to be looking at it. That's horrible. <laughs> so you should be getting rid of it. Um, those are the two biggest things that I look at. And then sometimes like I'm, I'm trying to corroborate or correlate it with, um, with heat maps as well. But, um, and it gets more nuanced than that. I could go through a whole thing, but those are like the two things. And you'll get a lot of insight out of just paying attention to those two things. So. I absolutely have a newsletter. You can go to draft.nu or draft.nu slash letters and you can subscribe to it. All of you can subscribe to it. Um, I don't discriminate. Cool. Um, well, thank you again. I think uh, Beav is up next. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick, for that. Super valuable, really helpful. Nick is the guy I go to when I have conversion rate optimization, heat mapping, split testing questions of my own. He's my go-to resource. I am lucky to have him. If you want to be notified about our next meetup, you're going, oh, it's pretty valuable. Sorry. Sorry I missed out on that. Just make sure you've got a way for me to send you notifications. Sign up for my newsletter, KurtElster.com, or join our Facebook group at uh, on Facebook. Search Unofficial Shopify Podcast. Sign up for that. That way you'll be notified when the next meetup happens. Uh, it should be midsummer, but depends on what dates we can lock in for a venue because I want to make sure we get another great one. And I certainly need to thank our sponsors who made the event possible. Shopify Plus, Gorgeous, Bold, and Task Husky, all fabulous, fabulous vendors, sponsors, and we were lucky to have them. Thanks for listening. One final note before we go. I wanted to remind you about the one Shopify theme my agency has used more than any other. It's called Turbo by Out of the Sandbox. And as its name implies, it's built for speed. But that's not why I love it. I love it because it's the most configurable, feature-packed theme for Shopify today. Features like predictive search, easy mega menus, infinite scrolling collections, and a ton of page templates. Calling it a theme doesn't do it justice. I think of it as a rapid prototyping tool for Shopify stores. And I've got a special offer for you. You can get it today at a 20% discount when you use the code PODCAST20. You can even try it for up to two weeks, and if you don't love it, Out of the Sandbox will give you a full refund. To check it out now, go to ethercycle.com turbo and use code PODCAST20 at checkout. That's ethercycle.com turbo. If you'd like to help us spread the joy of entrepreneurship, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, the unofficial shopifypodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find some episode notes, including some details you might have missed. You'll also find offers from our sponsors. Please support our show by supporting them, and thank you. The unofficial Shopify podcast was recorded and hosted by me, Kurt Elster, and produced by my business partner, Paul Rita, for our Shopify partner agency, EtherCycle. Check us out at ethercycle.com. 
The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.